Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Amy Rojek, Director of BDO Center for Governance, and I'm happy to have the chance to sit down with Tim Kaviz, our nationally managing partner at BDO and our resident expert on all things related to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, otherwise known as the SEC. One of the most notable areas of interest in the current period for our public company clients and contacts is understanding the impact of the SEC's proposal regarding climate change disclosures, what the final rules may look like, and the timeframe for effectiveness of significant anticipated requirements with respect to company-specific climate-related disclosures. But first, a little bit about Tim. He leads the firm's national SEC practice and brings more than 30 years of experience in accounting, financial, and SEC reporting, auditing, and business management. Tim assists clients and engagement teams with complex accounting and SEC reporting matters in connection with IPOs, business combinations, dispositions, restructurings, debt and equity financings, and other transactions. In addition, he reviews registration statements, private offering documents, and periodic SEC filings for companies with both GAAP and SEC requirements. Prior to joining BDO, Tim led the accounting policy and external financial reporting departments at Freddie Mac. He was a professional accounting fellow in the office of the chief accountant at the SEC, and before that, he was a senior manager in the assurance practice at a big four firm. Aside from that, I often embarrassed him by indicating how fascinated I am by the depth and breadth of his various hobbies, but promise not to do that to him today. So Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So as background, Tim, if you might, can you take us back to the original SEC proposal for those who haven't followed it as closely as us? Uh, You might remind us both of the broad areas of reporting that the March proposal covers. Sure. Uh, It it is a fairly expansive proposal. I'll try and summarize it down um, into digestible bites. And I'll, I'll start by focusing on the areas of the filing that the proposal addresses. You know, there are significant disclosures that would be required by the proposal that are outside of the financial statements. And that include things such as narrative disclosures about climate risk and their impact and how a company manages them. And those are broken into a couple of broad categories. You know, there's a a laundry list of governance disclosures that are required. Uh, There's a section that addresses the strategy of a company, its business model and its outlook and that you know how that relates to climate risk and ESG matters, uh, a risk management section, and then it gets to um, the one that most people have heard about and probably gets the most press, and that's the quantitative disclosures about greenhouse gas emissions. Now those requirements of those quantitative disclosures are broken into categories, and they're called Scope One, Scope Two, and Scope Three emissions. So the scope one emissions are direct greenhouse gas emissions from operations that are either owned or controlled by a company. Uh, Its scope two emissions are 
indirect emissions from the generation of purchased or acquired electricity, steam, heat, cooling, things like that, um, that are consumed by the operations of owned or controlled companies. And then scope three emissions, those are all the indirect greenhouse gas emissions that you wouldn't otherwise include in a registrant's scope two emissions, but they occur in the upstream and the downstream activities of a registrant's value chain. So its supply chain, its customers, et cetera. Uh, these quantitative disclosures, they're required to be presented for all years that are reported in the financial statements. And the disclosures would include emissions for all entities that a registrant consolidates, as well as those that are accounted for as equity method investees. So it's pretty expansive. Additionally, if there are targets or goals that have been set for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions or other climate-related matters, then there's further disclosure requirements uh, in that area. Uh, the next category of disclosures move into the audited financial statements themselves. And there's requirements for climate-related impacts of events and uh, transition activities on each financial statement line item. And those are amounts that exceed the absolute value of 1% of a line. And that, that's a real important point that I think many people missed when reading that proposal is that it is the absolute value. So to the extent there are items that offset one another, uh, you don't net them down. You take the absolute values and consider whether or not those individual items, those transition activities or um, climate events, whether those in aggregate exceed 1% of the line. And if they do exceed 1% of that line item, then they require disclosure. So it's going to require um, a lot of system change and process change to capture that information, aggregate it, and evaluate it for disclosure. Uh, additional disclosure requirements include aggregation of the amounts of climate-related costs that have been both expensed and capitalized, and then any climate-related impacts on estimates or assumptions that are used in the preparation of the financial statements. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, a couple items to consider here as it relates to the, dis the location of these disclosures is that you know, all the information that's presented is going to be subject to disclosure controls and procedures and certifications by the CEO and the CFO, the what's referred to as the Section 302 and 906 certifications. Uh, the financial statement disclosures, those would be subject to internal controls over financial reporting. Now, the liability would be the same for any other disclosures that are included in the annual financial statements except for the scope three emission disclosures. Those are subject to safe harbor. Uh, it's also important to note that both the narrative disclosures and the quantitative climate-related disclosures would require to be electronically tagged in inline XBRL. Um, lastly, assurance would be required on scope one and scope two emissions. So first you would have limited assurance on those emissions disclosures, and then later it would be reasonable assurance. And that would be for all um, issuers except for non-accelerated filers and smaller reporting companies. So that's the summary of the proposal. There's a lot to take in there, I know.
<laughs> yeah, there certainly is. And, and a few things there. Um, obviously, the in the effectiveness of the attestation requirements, there's a little bit of a ramp. And I know we're going to get into some of the comment letters in a moment. Um, but just in terms of, you know, the, the larger accelerated filers will probably have the most aggressive timetable followed by accelerated filers. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens when the ultimate standard comes out. But I, I did want to also pick up on something you said earlier, because this is a, a BDO in the boardroom podcast, and I didn't want to um, leave out the fact that, you know, there are governance requirements for the board to consider as well as the executive management team. And it and that revolves around the type of knowledge and expertise that may be residing in the board. Tim, could you talk a little bit about that, what's proposed there? Oh, sure. Um, you know, there there's a whole host of requirements in the governance area. Um, some of them include, uh, you know, just talking about the governance process itself. Um, you know, the oversight that the board and management have over climate-related risks, um, the risk management process. Uh, you know, the board's oversight specifically, um, it, it requires identification of the board member or members that are responsible for climate-related risks, as well as those that have expertise and the nature of that expertise. Um, also, disclosure about the board's process for discussing climate-related risks. And then it, it goes beyond the board. It also goes to management. Um, so what's management's role in identifying, assessing, and managing climate-related risks? Um, sort of management positions or committees that might be responsible for assessing and managing those risks, and then how frequently they report that information to the board. Right, and presumably, if those aspects of the proposal go through, there'll be a lot of emphasis on the types of policies maintained by the company in order to make sure that those disclosures are in align with what's actually occurring in the company. So lots more to, to come on that. But obviously, the, the areas that I think the majority of folks are focused on is within the disclosures themselves and, and the, the significant impact that that could have. So maybe we talk a little bit about the substantial response to this particular proposal. And the, the SEC received more than 14,000 comment letters, albeit you know, the, the majority of those were pretty much thumbs up, thumbs down, where the concentrated amount of comments that actually were really kind of truly thoughtful and went through a lot of detail in highlighting to the SEC where there may be practicality issues and applying some of the guidance where there was a lot more guidance that seemed to be needed. Um, maybe, Tim, you could, you could give us a little bit um, of a sense of that and, and why the, the SEC actually reopened the comment period until earlier last month um, due to a technical glitch that I know has kind of put the proposal um, expected proposal proposal time, excuse me, a little bit more delayed than perhaps it already was. Sure. So yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. There was like over fourteen thousand comment letters that came in, but about ten thousand of those were form letters, and there were probably about three thousand or so individual letters that came in. Those form letters and individual letters really didn't have any substantive response to the proposal. They, they might have just had a broad sweeping, yes, we're in favor, but they really didn't talk about the proposal itself 
um, what benefits would be derived from it, what problems might be experienced from it, et cetera. So there really were only about a thousand letters that were substantive. But if you think about that still, a thousand letters, that's an awful lot of responses. I think there's probably a total of 13,000 plus pages of substantive comments for the staff to wade through and evaluate. So, you know, that level of response and the degree of attention this proposal garnered uh, really highlights the significant impact that this is expected to have. Um, diving into the feedback, you know, it, it was a mixed bag. You know, there, there was, depending on what category of those letters um, you're looking at, uh, there were various amounts of support or opposition to the proposal. But if you look at the substance of letters, <coughs> you know, there's really a mix of probably almost 50-50 mix of support versus opposition. And I, I, I want to, you know, temper that, that word opposition lightly. It wasn't like they were opposed to, to the proposal, but they had concerns with some of the things that were proposed and highlighted those and oftentimes offered alternative suggestions. Um, getting into some of the specific feedback that came back, um, particularly those that were sort of in favor. Uh, you saw commenters saying that the proposed rules would really help protect the environment. I'm kind of surprised by the amount of feedback that came in saying that, because I'm not sure how a financial statement disclosure in financial reports protects the environment. But you know, it was a very common theme in the supporting letters. Um, but there were a lot of other, you know, good comments that were raised, things like you know, categorize it into categories like investor choice. The rules would enable investors to make more informed choices in their investing decisions. Um, many felt that the rules would enable investors to protect themselves and their investments as it relates to climate-related risks by being better informed of uh, the risks that a company was exposed to and how it managed them. Um, standardization of the climate disclosures, that was another common theme among support. Um, Increased transparency by requiring all companies to disclose the information. Uh, and then also aligning with some of the international and foreign regulatory frameworks. Uh, so a lot of you know, very substantive comments coming in, in in support. But then there were also, you know, as I mentioned, there were some that were outright opposition and others highlighting concerns. And the ones that were focused on just outright opposition, really focused on topics such as, uh, you know, the SEC lacking the ability to issue these disclosures um, because it's beyond the scope of their statutory authority. Uh, that was probably the most frequent comment that came up in opposition. Uh, others highlighted compliance costs that they believed it would be, you know, unreasonable or extensive costs on businesses. And then there were some that highlighted, you know, just climate science skepticism, if you will, you know, concerns that the science concerning climate change itself is unsettled. So therefore, you know, the proposed rule was really inappropriate. But if, if we move into the other category where there were people pointing out concerns or issues and then offering suggestions, the, the, the common topics that came up were things like, you know, further alignment with international standards. There are uh, requirements in international organizations to do climate reporting that aren't 
required today in the U.S. So the SEC and U.S. reporting is a little bit behind the international standards because it's more mature on the international stage. Um, many commenters highlighted that perhaps the SEC's models and its proposed rules should further align with those international standards. Um, other Others suggested a more extended phase-in period, uh, mainly because of the extensive nature, the time to ramp up the aggregation of that information, the time to establish the processes and internal controls to be able to comply with the requirements, as well as other SEC requirements like disclosure controls and procedures and internal controls over financial reporting. Um, as it relates to scope three emissions, there were, uh, you know, two different tacks that were taken on scope three. Some said that there should be um, an elimination of the exemption for smaller companies from the scope three emissions, and others said that the scope three should be just removed outright. So a, a little bit of a mixed bag on scope three, but scope three was probably one of the more controversial items, and certainly that came through in the comments. Uh, another significant observation uh, and suggestion was that the SEC take a more principle-based approach towards materiality. Uh, and that, that's in specific reference to the financial statement disclosures and those that I mentioned where you're required to take your transition activities or your significant weather events and the impacts they had on each financial statement line that exceeded 1%. Um, many highlighted that they believe the 1% was oftentimes below materiality and that by requiring that, particularly in the audited financial statements, that would place undue emphasis on the climate-related disclosures and would actually you know, have a lower threshold than what might otherwise be in the rest of the financial statements. So just encouraging the SEC to take a more principles-based approach to materiality and allow for material items to be disclosed. Uh, and then one other comment that came up very frequently is that this information um, should be furnished, not filed. And that's mainly because of the liability that comes associated with information that is uh, filed with the SEC. Yeah. So that, that in a nutshell is really the feedback that came in. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, Tim, and thank you for, for your insights there, because there is a lot to unpack with this particular proposal. And if my memory serves me, by comparison, I think when, you know, the, the Sarbanes-Oxley disclosures came out, the, the, the type of uh, comments were, you know, very, very, very few in comparison to this. I think there were less than a couple hundred <laughs> versus the 14,000 that we've been mm -hmm. talking about. So let, let's move to, um, you know, with that backdrop, let's let's move to timing because we're recording this about a month after the U.S. midterm election cycle that, you know, obviously occurred in a highly politicized environment where we saw a change in the majority in the House of Representatives. Uh, do you expect the change in the House will have any impact on the timing of content or, or on the content of the proposed rules, I should say? Now, I really don't. Um, you know, the SEC received a mandate from the administration to proceed forward with these disclosure requirements, and they're moving forward under what they believe is their authority um, that's been granted by Congress. There are those in Congress that 
believe that is not the case and that they lack the statutory authority to propose the rules. So I think there's going to be some wrangling about that per se. But I don't think the change of the House to the Republican majority is really going to have any impact on timing whatsoever. I think any opposition that would have been there uh, would have been there regardless of whether or not there was a change. Um, you know, significant rule proposals like this, it's not uncommon for there to be significant opposition from one party or another. So th that's not really unusual. And I think the SEC is quite adept at navigating those issues. So I, I just don't think that'll have an impact on timing. Gotcha. So I guess has the SEC to date provided any indication of when the final rules will be issued and, and what factors may be influencing that timing? Yeah, they, they really haven't. Uh, you know, the fact that they had to open the comment period again, and as you mentioned, there, there was a technical glitch where uh, prior to the, the cutoff date, the original cutoff date for comments, um, there, there appeared to have been a glitch. So the SEC was concerned that maybe not all the comment letter responses that people wanted to submit uh, were able to be submitted. And it, it wasn't unique to just the climate proposal. There were several other proposals that were impacted by the very same glitch. So they reopened the comment period uh, for those proposals to allow people to get their comments in. Uh, that, to an extent, delays the process because you're now waiting for those comments to come in and that reopening occurred several months after the cutoff date for comments was originally in place. So that definitely pushed any timing out by several months. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with there being a thousand substantive comments with over 13,000 pages of comments to work through, that's a lot of work for the staff um, to digest, consider, evaluate whether or not there should be any changes to the proposal, what those changes would, would be, et cetera. Um, you know, the, the tact that the, the staff took with this proposal uh, was to put basically everything that they could hope for in the proposal and send it out for comment. Uh, the reason for that is if they were to submit something less than the full proposal that they sent out and feedback came back and they needed to make changes or they added things that weren't there previously in response to feedback, that would require re-exposure. But by putting everything that they'd hoped for in the proposal, getting feedback, it allows them the opportunity to perhaps take things out or make changes to what was proposed without the need to re-expose. So you, you can tell that it was very intentional the way they approached it. Um, beyond that, you know, the SEC really hasn't given any indication on the timing. They haven't said anything publicly. Um, there haven't been any public meetings posted to their website yet, so you can't really tell what progress has been made. They've been kind of close to the vest. We know it's a high priority item for the commission and that they are working on it. So I would expect that in Q1, we're likely to hear something or at least get some indication of where the proposal stands, uh, and we'll, we'll have a better idea at that point. Fair, fair enough. So, so I'm going to switch it up a little bit and note that many companies may be seemingly taking the wait and see approach and judging by the volume of requests that we're getting from our clients for timely presentations on ESG reporting, we have many highly engaged boards and management teams 
who to to not only want to understand the potential reporting coming their way, but what they should be thinking about and the actions that they can be taking in the interim. Can you share some best practices that companies could be adopting now in preparation for anticipated rulemaking to be incorporated into their current periodic and annual reporting? Yeah, absolutely. No, the SEC issued some guidance in 2010 on ESG reporting. So I would encourage all companies and boards to refresh themselves on that guidance. It, it's been exist, you know, outstanding for quite a while now, but re- refresh themselves on that guidance. Um, they should also you know, take a look at what sort of sustainability reports the company is already preparing. You know, many companies already have sustainability reports that touch on a variety of ESG-related matters, but they're often posted on their website. So they, they should take a look at that guidance, maybe start considering how what they're preparing compares to what's called for in the proposal, and start creating a gap analysis. Um, they should also compare what they're presenting in those sustainability reports and compare it to that 2010 guidance. Um, about this time... Uh, was it? I think it was last year. About this time last year, the SEC issued a whole host of comments on climate-related matters to public companies, and then they, you know, it was a sample comment letter that they posted, and that we now are able to see the comments that went out to individual companies and their responses. But you know, some of the learnings that we got out of that comment process was that the SEC was looking at that guidance that they'd published and looking at the sustainability reports and observing that very little of the information in those sustainability reports was actually included in the 10Ks of the companies. And that led to another round of questions about, well, if this is important information to get out and disclose in the sustainability report, why is it not included in your 10K? And a lot of the responses came back focusing on materiality. And that triggered a whole new round of questions from the SEC asking for the materiality analysis. So they wanted to make sure that companies had thoroughly evaluated and documented that analysis. And what came became clear in that process was the SEC was not focusing solely on quantitative financial statement materiality, but also looking to qualitative materiality. So if ESG-related matters were so important qualitatively, was that information not material? That was the crux of the implicit question there. So you know, companies should take a look at that and start con- considering that. Um, they could take a look at their risk factors in MDNA and other documents um, and start looking to see, are, are they calling out these risks appropriately? Are the risks material? If they're not, Make sure you've got a well-documented materiality analysis. If the staff asks a question, then you can provide your analysis. Uh, do some peer benchmarking. Um, make sure that you know companies understand the type of climate re- re- risks that they're exposed to and how material they might be. And you know, again, evaluate your disclosures and make sure that they've been addressed. Uh, Companies should really take a look at the proposal as written and start thinking about what, if anything, they could be doing on aggregating information. You know, if you think about the, the sustainability reports that companies already prepare, it is highly unlikely that that information has been aggregated in the same manner at which financial information that's subject to disclosure controls and procedures or internal controls over financial reporting has been. So just you know, aggregating and reporting that information 
under that controlled framework. That's going to be something new for most companies. Uh, so that's a process that they should begin now. Um, further, you know, we, we talked a bit about the governance-related matters. Some of those governance-related disclosures, there's nothing that prevents a company from including governance-related discussion in their filing. Cur currently, most governance-related disclosures are in the proxy or in part three of the 10K that gets filed, you know, after the 10K goes out usually. Um, but that, that's one thing that companies could start looking at now and start drafting if they so felt um, it, it worthwhile. Um, you know, if, if you, again, take the proposal as written, companies could start trying to build the process to aggregate and accumulate the information that would require to be reported. Um, you know, other things companies should do is uh, look at the specific reporting requirements that they may need to comply with, as I mentioned, but also you know, evaluate the control environment, start documenting the information internally, um, start trying to see if they can draft the disclosures. Now, first crack out, you're probably not going to be able to, to completely craft those disclosures, but you can identify what gaps exist and start putting together a plan on how to fill those gaps. Uh, most companies are going to have to work with third parties. So if, if there's going to be a need to engage with third parties, start identifying th those third-party resources uh, that can assist with readiness. Um, boards should absolutely maintain current on all the developments that are coming down the pike. Um, to the extent there are any significant changes, that would obviously change the plan that a board might be engaging in for adopting um, this proposal. Um, I guess lastly, they, sh they should start thinking about the disclosures that they're going to have to make from the lens of the users of their financial statements. So if they start thinking about investors in their company and looking at their disclosures on what would be decision useful, what would be reasonable, what would be important in making an investing decision in the company, and then start evaluating whether or not there are key disclosures that are ESG related that they should start making. Great. Thank you. All great advice, Tim. And I think, you know, obviously BDO is is in the in the business of providing thought leadership and other guidance to our clients and contacts. So what might we have coming up that may help companies remain current in this topic? Yeah, we recently put out the 2022 SEC Reporting Insights publication, which highlights activity from the year and included in there is a discussion of this proposal so that that's a good thing to take a look at you know, in mid-december we'll have the aicpa's sec and pcob conference and we'll put out a conference highlights summary we expect there might be discussion about esg and the proposal there so if anything new comes out it would be captured in that publication we also have the audit committee agenda uh, publication. Um, I'm, I'm sure we're going to have webinars on the final standards once they come out. Um, we've got BDO's Center for Accounting and SEC Matters, where any publications that we put out on proposed or final rules will be located. Uh, we've got the Center for Corporate Governance, where a lot of information has been already prepared for boards and audit committees. And I know, Amy, your group will continue to populate that as new information becomes available. But then we also have the ESG Center for Excellence. And 
there a lot of the ESG-related materials uh, will be included. Once those final rules come out, we're sure to have a publication that will summarize the final rules and we'll start getting into some of the implementation issues. And as more issues come up during the process, I'm sure uh, further publications and webinars and podcasts will be available to help uh, companies and boards navigate through those issues. Absolutely. Thank you for that, Tim. And yes, and in regard to any kind of um, information coming out, we do intend to do a kind of compare and contrast to the original proposal so that people can understand um, what's been changed or, or what's remained the same. So we'll have a lot more information on that to come. Um, today's podcast was focused on the SEC sustainability disclosure activities in the United States, but there's much more happening globally. And we invite our audience to tune in to upcoming episodes of BDO in the Boardroom for more on international ESG and sustainability reporting development that U.S. companies doing business overseas should also be paying attention to. Things like the ISSB, um, the CSRD, FRAG in the U.K., and many other acronyms and, and other terms that probably will make your head spin. So <laughs> I want to thank you, Tim, and to our audience for tuning in here today. And we hope you'll continue to tune in. And like I said, we, we plan to do a series of podcasts to break down the components of the final rules, both here in the U.S. US as well as abroad for our listening audience. Thanks, Amy. It's been a pleasure to be here to talk to you about this topic, and I look forward to speaking with you more on it in the future. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash bdo knows governance.